Welcome back to the program. Socrates was worried about the rise of written text. He feared that it would change our habits of mind and not allow us to remember. The printing press would spark another revolution as mass-produced text would change the world. Not unlike our current digital revolution, the pushback was fierce and loud. And because history does repeat itself, we can indeed learn a lot by looking back at the last great technological revolution in publishing, one that gave birth to the publishing industry itself and that today fights for its place against the digital tsunami. Journalist Alex Christie takes us back to this momentous time 500-plus years ago in her debut historical novel, Gutenberg's Apprentice. Alex Christie is an author, journalist, and a letterpress printer. Gutenberg's Apprentice is her first novel, and it is my pleasure to welcome Alex Christie to the program. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, I'm really glad to be with you. It's great to have you here. At what point in the process of thinking about this project and then starting to do the research and writing it, were you struck by some of the analogies to, to the revolution that we're seeing take place today as as the printed word gives rise to digital? I mean, as you read your story, you could almost imagine, you know, Jonathan Fust being Peter Thiel and uh, Peter Schofer being Sean Parker. Well, I'm glad that you read between the lines and picked that up because it really was something that grew as I wrote it. I think when I became um, began to write the character of Peter Schofer, who is the scribe turned printer, who is the hero of the book, I began to realize that my interest in him was that he could articulate some of the ambivalence I feel about digital technology and the fears and the excitement that we have looking forward, feeling the tsunami, as you say, of technology coming upon us and wondering what's going to be pushed aside, what are we going to lose, what are we going to gain. So that was kind of my first entree into realizing that he could stand because they lived through exactly the same kind of time as we are in now, you know. And then as I began to do the research, and I saw exactly what happened when the printing when the Gutenberg Bible was unveiled, the world's first printed book. As you say, there was initially the Catholic Church welcomed it because they thought it was a great way to spread the message of the of the gospel in a in a very um, unambiguous and and uh, a way in which there was no variation. But after about thirty years, they realized, oh, this is maybe not such a great idea because people can start thinking for themselves, and they cracked down and they instituted censorship. So. We are we're in the same period. I would say it's a 30, 40 year period uh, back then, and and today it's maybe shorter of massive tr- cultural and social transition. And it's interesting to listen to the fears and the concerns that are expressed now. And you you touched on them a moment ago, as we make this transition to the digital world and look at the fears and concerns that were expressed at that time, five hundred plus years ago. And there was just as much fear, just as much concern, and somehow we, we got through it for the better. Well, I suppose you could, we did get through it for the better, but I do believe that there's always something lost. Um, and at that period of time, it was the incredible beauty of the illuminated manuscript, which, you know, arguably, if you look at, at the degree to which they're prized today, um, as, as, a, as a civilization, we've never recaptured. So some things go away and new things take their place. And I think, you know, Peter Schiffer could articulate again that kind of ambivalence about technological progress. You know, I think in the book at some point he asked, you know, just because we can do something, should we? 
And at that time, you, you, they were so steeped in a, a religious worldview. You know, everything that, that man did was, was part of God's plan and destiny. Um, they really felt a great fear of overreaching and, and becoming godlike. And I think that if you look at our technological situation, you know, we're standing at a point where our technology has brought uh, our whole civilization to the brink of climate change. There are, there are things that our progress has caused which are not positive. So, you know, I think technology always needs to be looked at with a little, a little grain of salt and realize that, well, there, there, there are trade-offs. There are things. There, you know, of course, the printing press was an unmitigated good, um, but there's always a little bit, some, there's always a little shadow to the other side. Except that what history teaches us is that technology will always win out. So that we have to look at it within that context, I suppose. Correct. And, you know, human nature does not change fundamentally. I think that's the other thing about historical fiction that is great. It's why it allows us a window into looking at ourselves is that people, technology is always only a tool. You know, mankind has the same drives. In the story, we have three men, just like technology entrepreneurs today, you know, trying to make the the great, the next new thing, the next big thing, and struggling with ambition, greed, resentment, all of those things. Uh, so, I, I, as I, yeah, technology is a tool. It will always prevail, but we also, it's like, it's like uh, the free market. There need to be rules. There needs to be some kind of uh, organizing principle around it so that it doesn't take over. You mentioned Peter Schiffer. He's at the center of this story. Talk a little bit about who he was in connection to Gutenberg. He is the absolute unsung uh, hero, I would say, of history because the scholars who have studied this period, they're called incunabulous because it's the incunable period. It's the Latin word for the cradle of printing. Uh, they all knew about him. Everyone knows about him in the, <clears throat> sorry, in the scholarship, but he's never been really spoken about in public. And who he was was he was a scribe in Paris, and he was known to be working at the Sorbonne in 1449 because he signed something. We have the documents. And then later, about eight years later, he turns up in the lawsuit that ended the partnership between Gutenberg and Fust. It was uh, a contractual partnership. Fust was the venture capitalist. Gutenberg was the inventor. And no one has ever really known where Schiffer fit, fit in. He later married Fust's daughter um, and in my book, I imagine, I think, based on pretty good evidence, that he was his foster son, because very quickly he became involved in the workshop. And some scholars are, think that he was the person who designed the type of the Bible because he was a calligrapher. And he had an amazingly brilliant career afterwards. Two years later, he and Fuss together brought out the most beautiful book ever made, um, a psalm book from Mainz that is in three colors, which was unheard of at the time. And he went on to found the Frankfurt Book Fair and invent the business of publishing. And he uh, had a dynasty of four generations after him. So he was, he was the first great printer. He was the printer that Gutenberg was not. Gutenberg was an inventor. He was a, he was a tinkerer. You know, he was a man who made crazy machines. And what was the relationship between Fust and, and Gutenberg? Fust was the businessman. Gutenberg was a serial entrepreneur. He, not, before he came, he, he grew up in Mainz, um, but then he left and he lived in Strasbourg for 30 years, which is a river down, the, down the Rhine, and now is in France, but at the time was still part of the Holy Roman Empire. And so Gutenberg was very adept at finding venture capitalists to finance his, his schemes, 
which is not a negative word, but his, his inventions. He had invented something in Strasbourg earlier, which was a machine for polishing stones, which they used to create little mirrors you would hold up in, in front of a cathedral to catch the holy rays from relics. This sounds really crazy, but it was, you know, a mass production of these little metal things. So he was already, he invented mass production. They had that, that particular uh, business, which failed, because they got the year of the pilgrimage wrong. And uh, he went back to Mainz, and he looked around for another person to finance him. And Fust was a merchant. He was, in this period of time, in the mid-1500s, you had long-haul merchants who sold a variety of goods all over Europe. And uh, he, he, one of his sidelines was in manuscripts, so he dealt in manuscripts. So no one knows, of course, exactly how or why they came together, but in 1450... Fust lent Gutenberg 800 gulden, which was the equivalent of about four very nice homes. So very, a significant amount of money to start what they called the work of the book. And what's fascinating is the role that, that Schiffer played, which in many ways, from a historical perspective, overshadows Gutenberg, and yet Gutenberg gets the fame. Well, you know, we are the inheritors of the Romantic period where Thomas Carlyle, you know, he first put forward the great man idea of history, and I think we kind of have a fixation on the great man, um, you know, the Steve Jobs. And and interestingly, Walter Isaacson's new book that has just come out uh, is, looks at Silicon Valley as a history of collaboration. Um, but in in our in our historical view of Gutenberg that has been passed down from textbook to textbook in you know, persists in Wikipedia, you kind of have this very standard story, which is, in almost every respect, is incorrect. Um, It's as though we piled all of the attributes of the people who made the book on this one man. And in fact, you know, it was an enormous undertaking. It was 1,282 pages. It took them two years to print the thing, never mind make the type, get the money together, you know. And I think in the end, there must have been at least... 18 people in that workshop. So it was a massive undertaking, and, and, of, and it's all been focused on this one person. But this was one of the, the reasons that I was so excited about the story. I felt that it was an untold story of you know, the world's most important invention since the wheel. And here were these two other men who we really should bring out of Gutenberg's shadow. And talk a little bit about how you came to the details of this story, particularly in the context of your own experience with respect to printing? Well, that's the reason I became involved in this crazy endeavor at all. I am a letterpress printer from my youth. I'm, I'm not actively involved in printing now because I'm, I live abroad and I'm a journalist, and I do own a press. Uh, my grandfather taught me how to print in the 1970s, and he's a very illustrious person in the Bay Area uh, because he was the foreman of the hot type foundry McKenzie and Harris in San Francisco for more than 40 years. So he's someone who just brought to me this love of of everything having to do with hot metal and, and printing. And what happened was there's a, a researcher at Princeton named Paul Needham who in 2001, he really stunned the book world by uh, unveiling some research that said that Gutenberg's types were not as sophisticated as people had thought. Everyone, again, had attributed to him the invention as the invention had been practiced for 500 years. The actual technology didn't change from about 1470 until 1950, really, in terms of how type was made. And uh, 
this this research said no, not so fast. Actually, probably like any invention, it was an iterative process over an, a couple of experimental years, and maybe the, the technique they used wasn't quite so so fast, so sophisticated. So I just thought that is very interesting. And the New York Times headline was, "Has history been too kind to Gutenberg?" And that really set me off on a many years long journey to answer the question. And the answer I would say is yes. You know, he did not do it alone. No person could have done it alone. Um, and the rest of it is just years and years of digging in archives. And luckily, I speak German, and I lived in Germany at the time, which was, I think, probably essential. Went to Mainz a number of times and became very friendly with the two people in the world who are the greatest experts on the Gutenberg Bible. So, you know, I was really interested in the technology. I wanted to imagine and try and reconstruct how they might have gotten from point A to point B. The other part of it, and this is where Schiffer comes in in, in in a pretty extraordinary way, is not only the technology itself, but the way that that technology gets distributed. And, and in this case, the creation of publishing as a business. Yeah, well, he was an interesting man because I, I, I think I have him in the book. You know, he had two father, father figures. He had... In the medieval period, when you were apprenticed to a master, you belonged to that person. That person was your father in loco parentis, and, and therefore he had a very close relationship with Gutenberg. He must have had. And, and at the same time, his father, his foster father, was a merchant. And so he actually, in a way, combined these two skills in his own business and life. And he, he moved to Frankfurt, in fact. There was the... the the very, very tumultuous political situation in Mainz exploded in a civil war about uh, six years after the printing of the Bible. And, and all of the people who were trained in printing fled, which is why printing spread so quickly throughout Europe. And Schiffer moved to Frankfurt, and he set up his business of selling books along the lines of the long-haul trading axes, which his father had, you know, knew intimately. And so their business, very quickly, they were selling books in Paris all over Europe as opposed to the scribal tradition, which was very much around cathedral cities and universities. And this, this way, he, he, he really had that business acumen, and he became very wealthy. He was a judge in his later years. Um, he, he, as I said, he founded the Frankfurt Book Fair in the sense that he, it, there had always been books sold there in manuscript form, but he turned it into a, an, in, a multinational business um, and started not only selling the, the books that he and his father printed, but also then he was the distributor for books printed by other printers around Europe. How long was his vision in terms of what he saw happening with respect to publishing? This is where we enter the realm of imagination, I would say. You know, it's, it's very... None of them left diaries, sadly. Um, there's very few actual scraps of documentary evidence that even allow us to situate them in fact. And I think it's probably the case that none of them, neither of them, or not, not, maybe all three of them couldn't see where it was going to lead. I think Fust might have seen it most because he was a businessman and he sold books and he understood that if you could make them faster, you would make more money and it would change things. Um, and I have him saying that in the book. But I think at the time, Schiffer was a very religious man, and I believe that he felt that what they were doing was really to the greater glory of God, and it was 
you know, printing allowed the word of God to be uncorrupted. It allowed you to print something. The problem with hand manuscripts is that they were filled with error because every time you copied something, you introduced errors and they were passed on. So printing allowed, that's why the church liked it. It allowed them to have scripture without any error. And, and I think that was as far as he saw. I do know that 35 years later, he talked to an abbot and he told the story, and that's a true fact because we have the chronicle of this abbot who says, I spoke to Peter Schiffer. Uh, but we don't know what he said. And so that's where, in my, in my telling of the story, I, I wanted him to reflect on the meaning of what they had done 30 years earlier, and I thought it was a good way to do that. Um, and I felt, at that time, he might have had a great number of regrets because censorship had just started. The first books were not lovely. You know, there, there was a, it was very much like the first dot-com boom. Everybody and his brother piled in and started making books, and they were pretty cruddy. And... Uh, so I think that the first age of print was a kind of a free for all and not a pretty thing. So he may not he may have felt disappointed at least in his first reaction to it. And talk a little bit about Gutenberg and his kind of craziness in all of this. <laughs> well, I probably will get a little bit of um pushback from the German nation who have turned him into a saint. Um but I think and perhaps all of us know people like this, who know very brilliant people who, in a way, are megalomaniac. Um, I think some of the greater inventors have been rather brutal characters in their personal lives. Uh, certainly great artists have been like that, and some of the great tech leaders, too. And, and the reason that I felt that Gutenberg was that type of personality was that he left quite a trail of lawsuits behind him. And this doesn't necessarily mean that he was a litigious kind of argumentative character because in the Middle Ages, a lot of business was just settled by courts. But one particular lawsuit made me think, this guy really had a temper. And this, he was sued for breach of marriage promise. So he apparently had told this woman that he would marry her, and he didn't. So she sued him. Her name was Anna of the Iron Door. And uh, in the course of the lawsuit, he won the lawsuit, but he was fined by the judge for the extremity and foulness of his language against one of her witnesses. So I thought, mm, well, this kind of, you know, and he, he did leave a, a trail of broken partnerships behind him. Um, and I couldn't help but think, of course, of the social network and the Winkelvi brothers, <laughs> the Winkelvoss brothers, you know. It's, uh, I think that, you know, anytime you have a really charismatic, brilliant, kind of driven character, which you would have had to be, I mean, he it took him decades to perfect this really he started in the in the 1430s in strasbourg and even in the first lawsuit there were indications that they were beginning to work on this press very secretive everything was secret because there was no copyright there was no protection so it's very hard to know what they were doing because they didn't let on have you gotten feedback and heard from people in the tech world now and how they view this story not yet, but I'm very much looking forward to talking. I'm going to be on Tech Nation later in the uh -huh. week, and I did send it. My husband is a tech correspondent for the for the Economist, and so uh -huh. we know an awful lot of people in the industry. And um, so I sent it to a, a number of leading people in the industry. Uh, Brewster Kale, who runs the Internet Archive, uh, read it in early drafts, and he loved it. And I, Mark Andreessen just tweeted that he was really excited to read the book. So, you know, I think they understand. As I said, the connection with Isaacson's book, which is also just out, is it's perfect. Of course, mine is fictional in that we cannot prove any of my theory, but I, I, I do think that we have a different understanding now about 
what a startup is. And this was the world's first tech startup. I mean, this was the technology that totally transformed the world in the same way that the digital technology is transforming our world, you know, and it's exactly 560 years later since they presented the book at the Frankfurt Fair. So I, I think probably anybody who's, who's busy creating the next media revolution will be interested in seeing how similar. And perhaps it's also, you know, my imaginary rendering of it is influenced by the fact that we live in this age. But I, as I said earlier, I don't think human nature changes that much, and certainly not in this short period. 500 years is not long in human evolution. So I look forward to hearing what the tech world has to say. Alex Christie, her book is Gutenberg's Apprentice. Alex, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was a great pleasure, Jeff. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 